you know, in our modern times, when we're thinking about bottom line and managing farm margins to make a profit, if you can get producers to think about the cover crops as an investment, it gets a little easier to think about adopting them. In this episode of Voices from the Field, NCAT Sustainable Agriculture Specialist Mike Lewis joins Sean Lucas, an assistant professor of organic agriculture at Kentucky State University, in a conversation about cover crops. In addition to specific crops, Mike and Sean talk about the timing of planting cover crops and the benefits that they can bring to a farmer's bottom line. Sean also describes his ongoing small ruminant research. Let's listen. Hello everybody, this is Mike Lewis from the National Center for Appropriate Technologies based out of southeastern Kentucky. My guest today is Dr. Sean Lucas from Kentucky State University and we are going to be talking about cover crops. But first, Dr. Lucas, if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sean Lucas. Uh, I am Assistant Professor of Organic Agriculture at Kentucky State University. I'm also a Certified Crop Advisor and uh, I represent Kentucky State uh, on the advisory board for the Southern Cover Crops Council. So I'm glad to be here today to talk about cover crops. That's great. I've, uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing you and, and gleaning knowledge from you for a long time, so it's great to be able to, to share it with a little bit of a, a wider audience. When we first met, I, we were in a class talking about soil health. You, you actually were a professor of mine way back when, not so long ago. And uh, it, was, it was a soil health class. And so I know, of course, that cover crops play a really big role in our production system. But I would love it if you could just give us a broad overview of what cover crops do in terms of soil health in organic production systems. Well, cover crops are a, are a multifaceted crop that is pretty easy to incorporate into a production system with a little bit of planning. You know, and obviously they're called cover crops because we're growing them to protect the soil surface from wind and water erosion. But we derive a lot of soil health benefits from cover crops as well, uh, mainly because if you manage them right, cover crops can be a great way to build soil organic matter, which is really the key component of soil health. And in my experience, can have a significant impact on pest control and disease control as well. If you could just touch on that aspect of how cover crops impact insect and disease control. Well, when I think of what cover crops can control, I'm more thinking in terms of maybe weed suppression as opposed to disease and uh, insect control. Obviously, cover crops can serve as a repository for beneficial insects. Uh, if you're growing the right summer cover crop, something that will attract, you know, pollinators, beneficial wasps, parasitic wasps that, that might attack some of your problem insects uh, that affect your crops. But really what I like cover crops for in terms of helping to control problems is for their ability to suppress weeds. And they have several different mechanisms by which uh, cover crops can suppress weeds in a cropping system. Um, they can be allelopathic which means that they have some chemicals in the biomass of the cover crop that uh, they either secrete or they can be released as the cover crop residues decompose. Uh, and those chemicals will inhibit either weed seed germination uh, or weed growth when those weeds are exposed to those chemicals. Now it's a short-term thing and you, and you do have to time it and management. Once the residues are gone, 
of cover crop residues are gone, those allelopathic chemicals will dissipate and then the weeds can sort of get a foothold again. And you also have to be careful uh, with what you grow after certain cover crops because you don't want these allelopathic chemicals uh, affecting your crops. But allelopathy is one mechanism. Another mechanism is cover crops, you know, if you manage them right and plant them correctly, they can just have a very dense canopy, which serves to outcompete and smother weeds, compete for those nutrients and other resources that the weeds might be trying to get as well. So it depends on whether you're, you know, deciding on whether should I leave a summer field fallow or should I grow a cover crop? You know, if you're in Kentucky or areas east of the Mississippi where we have enough water, I'd say a cover crop is a good idea and you can compete out some of those problem weeds. You know, cover crop residues can also inhibit germination of weed seeds in early spring just because some seeds require light to germinate and that cover crop mulch on the surface will prevent that light from hitting the weed seeds and stimulating germination. So there are a couple of different mechanisms for weed control, but, you know, strategically managed cover crops uh, can be a good tool in the toolbox, particularly for an organic farmer where you don't have some of the chemical tools in the toolbox that a non-organic producer would have. Yeah, it certainly seems like if more people would, would adopt this, as, as you were just explaining, as, as a weed depression, uh, suppression method that that would you know that would have a significant impact on just the the herbicide load that's that's making its way back into the the watershed now. So one one of the interesting things you talked about that that I heard you say is you know you talked about this system and timing. So I, I would like to dive into that a little bit and maybe give a, just a for instance just to sort of understand how you would plan a cover crop rotation. So. Let's say I've just harvested, you know, a hundred foot row of spinach. How long do I wait before turning that soil back over and, and, or if I'm not turning it over, if I'm no-tilling it, how long do I ideally want to leave that fallow? I mean, this, this system's thinking is, I think, part of the struggle that we all have as farmers is what's the timing and what's the proper mechanism. So how long would you wait from the time you took a a crop out and then if you had if I only had a 30-day slot you know if I was going from spinach to 30 days fallow and then to carrots is it worth me putting a cover crop in that 30-day slot I guess so I just asked you two questions and now you have to unpack them <laughs> <laughs> well you know that is the trick and timing is 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 going to depend on several things like you articulated the crop that you're growing what your ultimate plans are for the entire year for a particular area or field, whatever you're growing in, high tunnel, whatever it may be. You, you have to f figure out how the cover crop is going to fit within your system. And so if you had a 30-day window, like in the example you just gave me, you want to pick something that grows really quick, puts on a lot of biomass really fast. You know, coming out of spinach, assuming, you know, are we talking late spring? Yeah, late spring. After the last frost? Yes. Yeah, so you might put something like buckwheat in that would get you a pretty significant amount of biomass within a couple of weeks. Now, earlier in the spring, it's a challenge because the temperature isn't going to be conducive to as fast of growth for something like buckwheat as you would get in the spring, or in the summer, rather. You know, something that would put on a lot of biomass rather quickly that you can turn over rather easily and then 
jump into your next crop in your cropping cycle. But really, it's going to vary for all the different operations out there and the different rotation systems that producers are going to have. You really got to find what's going to fit within your rotation. My answer to that question would be I do plant buckwheat whenever I only have a 30-day window just because it seems really well adapted here and it gives me a quick, you know, bunch of biomass to put sure. back in the soil before whatever that crop is that, that's coming in next. What I hear is this goes, you know, I just uh, met with a couple uh, cattle ranchers and they, they were talking to me, they told me this interesting story which I'll butcher so I'm not even going to try to tell it, but how at first they were farming cows and then they shifted their focus and thought, no, we're really farming grass, but now their focus has shifted entirely and they're really farming the soil. So in essence, using cover crops in your rotation is really about long-term whole farm planning because at the end of the day your you know your end goal is to help maintain the fertility and the resiliency of that soil that you're putting your crops in so uh, it speaks really well to that whole farm planning concept and having long-term plans are there tools or strategies that you found to help producers sort of make those decisions is there like a you know, a magic website, you can go to like Google and it will tell you all of that now. But, you know, how do you, how do you help farmers determine what that r rotation is and, and how the prop, what the proper crop is for the proper timing? For me, uh, working in organic agriculture primarily, one of my biggest considerations is managing soil organic matter. And you can get into thinking about what is the value of building soil organic matter in a system. How much benefit do you gain from natural nutrient cycling processes associated with having a greater level of organic matter? And there are people who have tried to, to put a number on this, like uh, every, every percentage of organic matter uh, is worth about $600 an acre. That's, a, that's kind of a highball number that some colleagues and friends of mine in extension at Ohio State came up with a couple of years back. It said every percentage point of organic matter was worth about 600 bucks an acre because of savings in inputs. And so instead of thinking about cover crops like a cost, because you're planting it and the seeds cost money and you're tilling it in or just mulching it so you're not really taking anything off the soil that's going to make you money in return immediately you have to think of it like an investment where you're kind of putting money in the bank to let it grow and what you're growing is your soil organic matter and your soil health to really facilitate all those natural processes that are going to save you money on inputs in the long run you know in our modern times when we're thinking about bottom line and managing farm margins to make a profit if you can get producers to think about the cover crops as an investment it gets a little easier to think about adopting them yeah and i think there's a lot of information out now that makes it you know easier for farmers to see the uh, the value in it when i started farming i didn't you know i wasn't thinking about soil health i just that's the way i had been taught you don't leave the, the dirt bare you know and and it, it's so much more complex than that I do want to want to talk about a couple specific cover crops that you you, you use and employ and, and why you, you use them and in what context. But I do want to um, give you uh, an opportunity to talk real quick if you'd like about your. I know that you've done some research with uh, small ruminants 
in uh, organic crop production systems and I would like to give you an opportunity to to talk about that because that's something that, that of course I, I have a lot of excitement around as you well know. Sure, well at Kentucky State University we have what is called our Evans Allen project. It's a it's a NEFA pro, NEFA funded project, USDA NEFA. And we are looking at small ruminants on pasture for three out of five years in a five year organic rotation. Where the other two years are organic corn and organic soybean. So we've got three years of animals on pasture followed by a year of corn, a year of soybean. Obviously in organic we're doing a fair bit of tillage and cultivation for managing weeds and then you know right after the corn soybean bang we put it right back into the ruminants on pasture. And you know we're experimenting with ruminants because small ruminants because there's not a lot of work that's been done. We're working with goats specifically. A lot of the work that has been done in um, integrated crop livestock systems has been on cattle. You know, we work with a lot of small-scale, under-resourced, underrepresented producers in Kentucky, and so uh, you know, goats and small, smaller operations are options for them. And so, uh, we're trying to develop an information base that may help people make decisions on you know whether or not uh, integrating goats into a cropping system whether it be horticultural, we're using grains, but there, you know, there might be ways you could adapt it for other systems is something they might want us to consider. And so we're looking at nutrient loading in the groundwater underneath these research plots. And we're also looking at soil health benefits, including uh, you know, soil aggregate stability, labile or active soil carbon, and then total carbon. So we're kind of looking at the overall ebb and flow of organic matter when you're cropping and tilling you're going to reduce that organic matter and when you have a you know an undisturbed pasture with animals defecating and urinating on it you're going to build that organic matter resource back up so far you know we've seen that the goats aren't really contributing to a lot of problems with nutrients in the groundwater uh, and the overall organic matter levels are at least staying stable over the course of we're four years into the five-year rotation and so it seems like the balancing act is working and we're, we're looking forward to hopefully in the next year or so getting some of that data published. That's great. Well, I look forward to reading that. You know, Kentucky, the, the, this is off topic, surprise, um, but the, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the small farms in, in Kentucky and I think that it's so, uh, it's so great to have you guys there doing that research on goats and small ruminants because so many of the farms in Kentucky, I mean the Kentucky farms aren't small and diversified because by, uh, well, some by choice, but it's geographical, you know, so it's really great that you guys are able to do the type of research at Kentucky State that, that you are around small ruminants because it's, it's critical to Kentucky's farm infrastructure, yeah. I, I believe. Caveat, I don't raise any small ruminants. <laughs> Well, we're fortunate at Kentucky State to have Dr. Ken Andrews, and he is our uh, small ruminant specialist, and he's worked pretty closely with me on the animal management side of that. I, you know, I come from a crop and soils background, and so uh, I'd spend most of my day with my staff chasing goats uh, if it wasn't for Dr. Andrews' staff and, and his input. So we're lucky to have him there as a resource. So it kind of just fit naturally with the needs of what, you know, Kentucky producers might be. We have an established goat research program there. It seemed like it fit, so we're trying to answer some questions. No, that's that's great. Um, so I do want to move on because I know that 
I can make you get long-winded <laughs> or vice versa. But I do want to uh, just, you know, for the sake of, of educating people, I do want to pick out a couple specific cover crops that you use and, and maybe just talk sure. for a minute about why you use them and how you use them. I, Of course, I wanted to talk about buckwheat, and you already circumvented that oh, by no. saying it grows quick. So... <laughs> Oh, well, we could we could pick up on that for a minute, you know. I mean, I love buckwheat in the summer. It is a great crop to squeeze into a narrow window. It puts on biomass really fast. It produces flowers very quickly. They're so beautiful. I and mean, they're really are. aesthetically pleasing. Uh, and and you know, in an organic system, they do attract some biodiversity, uh, some beneficial insects. You know, we tend to see a few more ladybugs around when we have buckwheat near our crops and you know there's anecdotal evidence that they may bring in some of the other uh, parasitic uh, insects that prey upon some of the insects that we don't want there but buckwheat just grows so fast rapid biomass onset and when you terminate it you immediately have a nice slug of organic matter going back into your soil the only trick is don't let it go to seed I've got some uh, wild native buckwheat down by the creek <laughs> that I've been, <laughs> been selectively breeding for uh-huh. some time now. Yeah, you know, well, we do try to get some of it to go to seed here just because, you know, we're, it, we're using it in small plot, you know, rotations. So, you know, 200 pounds of seed goes a long way for us. So we do try to harvest some of it, but sure. we're not super efficient at it, so we end up buying a lot. Yeah, and I know, like... My favorite thing is, you know, we could have this whole acre in in produce out here, vegetables, and you could get 15 feet from the buckwheat row and hear the pollination yep. taking on. I mean, the pollinators yeah. love it, so. But we won't uh, beat it to death. Well, and it'll flower at times when other things aren't out there, and that's why it seems <clears throat> to draw a lot of pollinators, which obviously if it attracts pollinators to... You know, an area near your crops that's going to be good for your crops as well. Yeah, it seems to throw. I mean, it loves it. It loves flowering in August. You know, and most everything else is like, give me water. You yeah. Know, and yeah. It, and it, it seems to stay really healthy. And I just, yeah, we use it's it's our go-to if we have you know a week. Yeah. We'll we'll put it in. So beyond buckwheat, what are some other common? I guess we're. I've put us into the vegetable pigeonhole, uh, vegetable production, organic vegetable production with my buckwheat out here, but what are some other common cover crops that you... Well, depending on what your window is, you know, if you have a little bit of a longer window in the summer, and it's interesting to start with our conversation centering on summer cover crops, because I think most people think of cover crops as a fall-winter kind of thing, but there are a lot of good options for summer. So if you have a little bit of a longer window and, and, you know, and you're trying to take a field out of commercial production and maybe do some soil building, I like sun hemp, which is uh, a legume, and it will put on some biomass very quickly, but also get you a little bit of nitrogen back in your system. I also like sorghum sudan, also known as sudex, which is a, you know, a grass related to sorghum, obviously, grows very quick grows very dense uh you can get a whole lot of biomass if you the longer you let it go the more biomass you're going to get uh and that one does have some nice allelopathic properties uh where it will inhibit some of the weeds that you might find in your system you know those are the three i really like to play with in the summer uh you know there's some interesting options out there people are looking at teff as a summer cover crop although you know clovers do fairly well 
so you have lots of options, but uh, you know those are the ones that I kind of lean on. Tef is more of an experimental, so you know unless you've done a little homework on it, I'd I'd be careful using that until you do do some homework on it. But you know it's a warm season, fast growing grass, native to uh, Ethiopia and other uh, areas around there and uh, in Africa. It's actually a food source, human food source there, but the seeds are very small and and difficult to harvest. Uh, so people here have really taken to using it as a ground cover. And Something that I want to play with and research going forward here in the next couple of years. We're, we're lucky that uh, Steve Diver at University of Kentucky uh, is a wealth of knowledge on that. And so uh, I need to tap his brain at some point and learn more about Tef and get some out in the field and play with it. Yeah, that would be, that'd be fun. I, w- I want to talk a little bit too now because I'm thinking about your, uh, you know, we, we just did summer and so I'm moving into fall and I'm also starting to think a little bit about not just talking about cover crops but talking about crimp rolling. Crimp rolling, you know, yeah. So, uh, so I do I do want to hear about fall cover crops but I'd also like to, you know, talk a little bit about crimp rolling too yeah. if that's because I know that that's some work that you've done. Yeah. Uh, you got a new crimp roller for your... Uh, you know, I, I actually haven't done as much work with crimp rolling as I'd like to do. It's I know just enough to be dangerous, and I've, I've watched some people use it. Uh, and we're just really starting to dial in our crimp rolling system at Kentucky State. Uh, we got our crimper roller uh, right before the pandemic, and it sat for a year. And I think this past spring was the first year we actually had it out and run it. But the idea with a crimper roller is you're... Uh, instead of mowing down uh, your cover crop and mulching it, or in a non-organic system, you would terminate with herbicides and, and let that mulch lay in the soil surface. With a crimper roller, you can roll over that material, and a, you're, you've got essentially a very heavy drum with some blades on it. Uh, they're not really sharp blades, but it's, since it's so heavy, there's enough pressure on the stalks that it will crimp the stalks, and so when you roll it down, they can't stand back up. If you just had a flat roller and you rolled those crops down, they would bounce back up, and and that would defeat the purpose of trying to terminate your cover crop. Uh, so if you crimp them and roll them, they lay down and stay down. You know, it's a pretty efficient way to kill off a cover crop. You know, in, in non-organic systems, people are using it uh, and then planting right into the residue after crimp or rolling and they'll supplementally spray it with herbicide sometimes. You know, in an organic system, you really have got to dial in your system because no-till is a little bit harder it takes in, time to get in an organic system. I mean, it's very region-specific, but the crimper roller is a nice way to lay down a cover crop, kill it, and get the good mulch on your soil surface to allow that cover crop to decompose and turn into organic matter and eventually create a nice uh, planting bed later on in the season. Very cool. I did hemp last uh, last fall as a cover crop, and uh, I I crimp rolled it and I planted cabbage into it. Nice. The hemp did not uh, kill with the crimp rolling. <laughs> it, it just rooted off the stalks and kept going up. But I thought, oh, this will work. I should have I should have waited until after the first couple frosts and let it die, and then yeah, rolled it down and planted into it. But I had I was in a rush to get the cabbage in, so. So, if we're thinking about the fall, one of my favorite things for my kids to plant, and I, I know not a lot about what it, it does other than building organic matter in my soil, but my kids love planting the, the daikon radishes mm. and coming back after we're, we're prepping a bed after they've been in there and, and, and seeing the, uh, the activity in yeah. the soil around the radishes. So, 
in the fall, we, we actually haven't this year because we were late with a lot of things, just for stuff going on, you know. But we always plant a, a bunch of daikon radishes in the yeah. fall. So is that what kind of activity are you seeing? Oh, it's just a lot of worms. worms and, and, you know, you can see the the, yeah. the the creatures, and the worms seem to like hollow in and make houses out of them after it warms up. Sure. Um, and, and they do a good job at breaking up the soil, and so you know, I think it makes sense that worms would be in there if you're loosening up the soil, making it easier for the worms to move around. Uh, uh, but that's essentially, you know, one of the, the cool things about daikons. People use them to loosen up compacted soils, especially some of the deeper rooting daikons. You know, you can get different varieties with different varying depths uh, of root penetration. But those some of those daikons are specifically called tillage radishes. I hope I'm not infringing on anybody's copyright there. But, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the, the whole point is that they send their root down and penetrate some of those areas where you might have a plow pan or more compacted soil and then loosen it all up and then whatever you're growing after them uh you know has a nice pour since you're killing them it's got a nice pour in the soil with organic matter filling it up and you know greater water retention and greater water infiltration so all the good things aeration all the good things that you want to happen or that you hope to get out of a cover crop those those tillage radishes can have a fairly quick impact and some of them can take some pretty cold weather i've noticed yep and if um, you get a lot of them that don't take cold weather they smell really interesting when yeah you, when, you, well, when they, when they die switched, off after frost yeah we switched varieties twice um <laughs> no and that's cool because that's like literally i always feel well i tell the kids at least and and in my you know non-scientific Way I tell the kids like that's like just a big bunch of food that we grew for the for the soil. Yep, you know, feed the um, soil to feed the crop. Yeah. So, what else in the winter though? I mean, do you use peas or what types of things? Do you I plant? mean, you know, I, I'm most familiar with a mixture of rye and vetch, and we grow that an awful lot at the university. I actually want to diversify that where I maybe mix two or three plants in. Well, I guess rye and vetch is two, but maybe I start adding things like a tillage radish or uh or some other type of plant in there yeah rye is good uh for biomass it comes on pretty strong it'll grow fairly constantly all through the winter even in the coldest parts of winter uh it will you know survive a pretty deep freezes and and continue to grow and then in the spring it'll really crank out the biomass and get you some some good plant material to donate to your organic matter uh, and then you mix vetch in with that, and I like about a 60-40 ratio of rye to vetch, but anywhere in between 60-40 rye vetch to 40-60 rye vetch, people play with that ratio to suit their needs. But the vetch gets you nitrogen and a, and a fair bit of biomass as well. And so uh, it's a legume. It's, uh, it's a nice combination for both building nitrogen and for building organic matter. You know, there are other options in there. Uh, winter pea is something a lot of growers use. Wheat and clover are both nice. Uh, wheat obviously is another small grain, very tolerant of uh, colder temperatures. Clover is nice because you can frost seed that late in the season and it will still generally kick out some biomass once you get into the spring. So really it's all about, you know, Blending things that are going to get you some biomass and maybe get you some nitrogen input. That's what I'm always always seem to be thinking about uh, when I'm thinking about winter cover crops. You know, it, it occurs to me 
if you allow the rye to grow to maturity and turn it into another product, it could actually keep you warm in the dead of winter as well. <laughs> Kentucky, Kentucky's famous for some of those products. Of those. They're Kentucky agricultural <laughs> products. Let me get that rye. <laughs> so I, I don't want to skip, well, I do want to skip winter because... <laughs> We just listed all the fall crops that you're going to leave in over the winter. There's yeah. not much you plant for crops in the winter. If we're being conscious of the, the three seasons now, as we've scientifically proven there are only three. Um, <laughs> trying what, to, we're trying to narrow it down more, I think, going forward. <laughs> as, we, as we move into spring, right, that's the time when we're planting a lot of crops, right? But I, I don't know if, if this is normal, but I look at there's two springs you know, in Kentucky, there's the, like my first round and my second round. So what are good strategies or good crops, you know, for that springtime? Are you Yeah, there's like brassica spring, and yeah. then there's like the spring that comes after brassica spring, right? And all, yeah. your, all your cold crops. But before we go there, I do want to emphasize, you know, cover crops that we're planting for fall. You know, we talked about timing earlier. You've really got to think about your timing there, you know. The later you get them in in the fall, the less biomass you will generate in the spring. So I like to come in as early as I can. You know, at the university, corn is a, it's a full season crop, right? And so I try to find my shortest season varieties of certified organic corn that'll do well in Kentucky so that I can get it out and get my rye vetch in as early as I can so I can maximize the benefit I'm gonna get from that cover crop over the winter and into early spring. You know, and then on, on the spring side of things, it's the same thing. You've, you're gonna have all kinds of variables coming your way like, like anything in agriculture, right? Weather conditions and starting to rain here, right? Uh, you know, the rain, will, the rain will inhibit your ability to get into the field and terminate your cover crop and plant your subsequent crops, right? And so these are all things that we have to deal with, challenges that we face when we add this extra layer of cover crops into our cropping systems but i think in the long term adding the benefits of those cover crops is worth the extra thought process it takes to get those in there successfully now yeah. what was the question about spring we had brassica spring and subsequent spring and um, <laughs> it's raining it's raining um no it was about it was about brassica spring but i mean that's that's important you know one of the things that i always you know, here from my coworkers at NCAT is, is we talk about this, this concept that diversity is part of a risk management strategy. And I think, as, as you said earlier, thinking about cover crops as an investment, you know, that's one aspect, but it also adds a, a layer of insurance and protection for your farm too, for, you know, whatever the weather or the markets might bring. Sure. So anyways, back to Brassica Spring. <laughs> um, I, uh, well, pea spring, right? Cause yeah. Because plant peas in February, right? Sure. So, <laughs> um, but no, spring cover crops, are there any specific ones that do better in this region or that you're more partial to or? Yeah. Uh, so, so brassicas in the spring, I like, you know, especially for some of the, you know, the, the, the markets that we cater to in organic, you know, uh, things like kale, cabbage, you know, your salad mixes that include things like the mustard greens and the arugulas, you know, radishes of brassica as well. So your radishes, your breakfast radishes and 
Easter egg blend radish, you know, all those things. Those are all, you know, those are all fun. And, and, you know, you know, obviously you got to cater to your market, uh, but those are things that you can get in early in the spring, even earlier, if you have, you know, access to season extension, like a high tunnel. But, uh, but yeah, those are all good options for generating some, some early season crops. Spinach, it's not a brassica, but it's, it fits into that, uh, window. window as do a lot of your, you know, your gourmet lettuce blends. And so, you know, a lot of the organic farms in this area will cater to, uh, you know, some of your urban centers uh, and and feed that those organic greens into, you know, local outlets uh, in the spring. Uh, and then, you know, by late spring, the farmer's market's opening up and, you know, they plan well, so they still have some of that coming out, you know, later in the spring when the farmer's markets open up. It's one of the things I like about that season is, you know, down here if we're using the, the load tunnels that I'm pointing at like you can see them but if we if we use those low tunnels we're able those crops come out soon enough before we're starting to think about putting in cucumbers or tomatoes or whatever we're thinking about going in there so we do have time for a quick you know a quick cover crop and I really like that again just you know depending on how early it is you know we can or can't use buckwheat but yeah. even getting a little bit more organic matter in there seems to really make us feel better you know having that extra one to two week window before when we would take those crops out and put well, and you're right i think maybe some of your peas might slide into that spot where you're not necessarily growing the pea to harvest the the pod but you're growing the pea to get a little bit of nitrogen and biomass in there. yeah well and fava beans fava great beans. too yeah i just i i'm so impressed with that plant just in, in terms of its aesthetics you know I, I'm, I'm really impressed but it does get very big and woody and has a, a lot of organic matter and again that I've found that's not something you want to let go to seed unless you're ready to harvest it because it comes back pretty good pretty quick yeah yeah <laughs> but well I think it's getting ready to rain <laughs> and uh, it's going to be some tin bag. We're, we're in Kentucky. Wait 10 minutes. And... I, know, I, know, I know. The <laughs> rain. What do you think about the rain? Like, look at my driveway. Look at the shed. You know, I mean, the, the water pressure has been so insane. And then I think about, you know, my colleagues out west who are dealing with drought and fires. And it's the complete opposite here. You know, and I think this is why it's a really timely, you know, to be talking about cover crops. Because, you know, we have to figure out how to keep our soils healthy and resilient so that we can deal with these, you know, these little blips in weather that we're seeing now are going to become more the norm. I mean, I've been saying for three years, if it ever stops raining, yeah. I can fix my drainage. Well, and, and you think about the long-term implications of climate change. One of the things that we've seen trending is more precipitation in the southeast. You mentioned the west is getting hotter and drier, but the southeast, particularly in the fall, is getting wetter for longer in the fall. And so, you know, it's becoming ever more important to keep the soil covered because you can erode a lot of good soil in the fall just like you can any other time of year, so. Quick, real quick. And you know, the humidity. Or driveways too. Driveways, yeah, <laughs> gravel, right. And you know, I mean, it, it's true though. I mean, the neighbor over here on, you know, it's a creek side, he cut, he cut out his trees. And you know, I own the bottom quarter of that hillside that he cut and he didn't cut that but it's increased the water that comes down our hauler and, and through here yeah. by by threefold easily yeah. so all these things in terms of like helping the soil to be able to hold moisture to be 
you know, the sponge that it was when God made it, you know, and said, this is good. Sure. Not, this is something you can play around with and try to make better, you know, so. Well, something you've got to work with, not play around with. You know, <laughs> you know <laughs> work with it. What an idea, work with it. Work with it. Manipulate it. It's the, I just, uh, I was just reading uh, some Wendell Figure out last how it night. works and work with it. And uh, I, I was reading three books at once, uh, not at once, but I, so I won't remember which book, but it was, uh, it was the quote that uh, we're the only species that con convinced ourselves we can create a technological solution for a biological problem. And I just like, think about that when we, we talk about cover crops, you know, the, the concept of, of cover crops isn't new, yeah. you know, it just went away when we started trying to do it easier and more efficient or more cost effective or whatever the reasoning was that we made this huge shift to, to petrochemical agriculture, you know, so cover crops, I think, are, you know, they're part of the solution, right? They're not just a, a tool for us as farmers to help build healthy soils and to help keep our farm strong and resilient. They're also a tool for us to help mitigate some of the climate challenges mm -hmm. that we face because all of the, well, I guess I can say this, all of the climate challenges we face are caused by the way that we interact with our environment. And soils serve as a good, you know, especially soils where maybe they've been beaten up over time, you know, getting getting soil organic matter back in those soils is, a, is you know, it's not going to solve the problem, but it's a drop in the bucket and every drop means something, right? And so if we can put more carbon back in our soils and, and cover crops are a great tool for starting to do that. So I, hit, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head with the way you're looking at it. All right, well, we better wrap up. Well, thanks for bringing me in. It's been fun. Uh, as always, I uh, appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I look forward to the next time, Mike. No, I, I appreciate it, Dr. Sean Lucas. Thank you so much for coming in, and we'll talk to you soon. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.